Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. 2021 was a year of unprecedented change. From an insurrection at our nation's capital to the end of the longest war in American history, we've struggled to make sense of all that's happened. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we're joined by three political experts. They'll help us sift through the events of the last year and look ahead to 2022. Brian O'Donovan is the outgoing Washington correspondent for Ireland's Public Radio Service, RTE. Dr. Duchess Harris is professor of American Studies at McAllister College. And Kaylee Rogers is a technology and politics reporter at 538. COVID-19 remained a powerful force throughout 2021. And while here in the U.S. we face fighting around mass mandates and testing, other countries face different challenges. Last year, Ireland became the poster child for its high vaccination rates. As of last week, 57% of Irish residents over the age of 18 had already received their booster shot. That's compared to the U.S., where just over 60% of Americans have received the first two doses, and about 30% are boosted. I asked Brian about Ireland's approach to the pandemic and what lessons Americans should take from those successes. I think Irish people, by their nature, tend to be quite shall I say, uh, compliant oftentimes when it comes to authority. They like to obey the rules. They like to follow what their leaders say. Some of the time we have been known, of course, to protest and to object, but certainly when it came to the pandemic, this time last year, Ireland at one point was deemed by head of population the worst country in the world when it came to infection. And I think that really scared the life out of people in Ireland. We're a small country, but per head of population, we had the worst COVID statistics in the world this time last year. I think once vaccines became available then, there was a real sense that people were going to get behind the vaccines. Very, very low vaccine hesitancy rates here in Ireland, very high vaccination rates. And I'm reminded of I was in the US this time last year. And the big talk then was that there were all these vaccines in the US, but Europe and Ireland were struggling to get their hands, and there was a vaccine supply issue, and that was the big concern back then. But as the year moved on, we saw a scenario whereby Ireland and Europe managed to get the vaccine supplies up. The vaccine take-up was extremely high, and then what we saw in the US, of course, was a scenario whereby they had all the vaccines in the world, but it was huge, huge vaccine hesitancy, and now you have this massive disparity when it comes to numbers vaccinated here in Ireland and across most of Europe versus the US. So let's follow up on that, because you mentioned the availability of vaccines and also, to some extent, the availability of testing. And so vaccine availability has increased across North America, across Europe and across Ireland. And yet in other places of the world, there is still this struggle to get access to a vaccine to even get to the point of talking about multiple doses or boosters. And I'm thinking here across the continent of Africa. Just 14% of people have been vaccinated. Do you think that the United States, that Europe, that Ireland, other places who have been able to get this access and do it successfully, 
Do you think they have an obligation to support other countries and other parts of the world in really addressing this pandemic head on? Absolutely. And I think the Omicron variant was the stark reminder that if you leave parts of the world unvaccinated, that's where the variants will develop. That's where the mutations will form. And the problem will start all over again. Now, I suppose one needs to be careful on one level using Omicron as the example. Fingers crossed right now, it looks like while extremely contagious, it is not as serious, but we don't know that yet. I know all the data isn't in yet, but it's still a stark reminder that if you leave parts of the world unvaccinated, that's where these problems will arise. And that is where you see the Israelis, for example, talking now about the fourth dose, where you have the boosters being rolled out across Europe, here in Ireland, and of course, in the US. And that really is the divide that we see right now, where you have one half of the world rolling out the boosters, going into shot number four, and you still have parts of the world that doesn't have any shots in any arms. And again, as I say, those variants are a reminder that that's a real problem. And what's that saying that the campaigns use, you know, once we we have to vaccinate everybody, if we don't vaccinate everybody, then there's no point in vaccinating anybody at all, because it's just going to continue and it's going to continue to be a problem. Kaylee, about 57% of people in Ireland have been boosted, have gotten a third shot, at least a third shot, compared to about 30% in the United States. And Brian mentioned that compliance or that respect for authority. And in the United States, what we're seeing is this increasingly polarized and politicized approach to what scientists and experts, long-term experts, have been saying. And so that questioning of authority of a community that we used to hold in esteem, we used to think we can listen to the scientists, but not the politician. Those lines have been completely blurred in the United States so that people in the scientific community have been labeled not just as partisan, but as elitist. Do you think that this is our new normal in the U.S., that we will continue to see this questioning of scientific experts? And if so, what does it mean for the future of the next pandemic or next challenge that comes to the U.S.? Right. I mean, in some ways, this isn't new, you know, individualism, personal responsibility, these are American values that often serve us really well as a country uh, and could have served us really well during the pandemic, if it hadn't been for this politicization that we saw where, you know, parts of the country and and people with certain political affiliations were suddenly within this group where the virus was downplayed, where vaccinations were questioned, where, as you mentioned, science itself was questioned. And we've seen a growing erosion of trust in institutions that we we typically used to bestow a lot of trust in, including journalism, including the government, including scientists um, and research. So this is sort of showing that the dark side of that and where it can go, you know, federalism in the United States could have served us really well in a pandemic, having each state do its own thing, roll out, you know, the processes that made the most sense based on how the pandemic was affecting them. But instead, what we saw was sort of a mishmash where some states were doing almost nothing at all and getting really hammered during some of those second and third waves, unfortunately. And when we lost a lot of lives because of that. So I think it's really concerning going forward, you know, if we don't even trust the scientific process, if we don't even trust the, the data that we're seeing, how then can we, we make decisions as a community and try to protect one another and take that personal responsibility and do what we think is right for ourselves and our families and our community if we're basing it off of you know different sets of facts? I think that 
idea of the different sets of facts, where we go to for information, who are the sources that we trust is so critical here because it's literally the difference between life and death, often for the most vulnerable segments of the country. And I think about now, if you look on social media, everyone is is suddenly a public health expert, a legal expert, a technology expert, because they believe if I read it in this space, it must be true. Do you think that there is an opportunity for us to resist that and to counter that? Or do you think the divisions just run too deep right now? Right now we're in a, a tricky moment, but I, I am an optimist. I think that there's there's got to be a way to to move and grow from this. I think as journalists in particular, I've, I've thought a lot about how can we restore some of the trust that we've lost within our institution. And I think that greater transparency is really helpful. So there's been more of a trend in recent years, for example, of, of pundits. I was just reading about this this morning, doing pundit accountability. So at the end of the year, being like, here's all the predictions I made that didn't come true. I was wrong about my interpretation of this and being transparent about when we get things wrong, how we do the work that we do. I think that maybe that can help build some of that trust back up that previously we just enjoyed by virtue of, of being journalists. Duchess, I want to bring you in here because Kaylee talked about being an optimist. And I think a year ago, January 2021, people had a degree of optimism that perhaps there would be some changes in leadership, not just at the presidential level, but across Congress. And then January 6th happened, where there was a dedicated violent insurrection to overturn not just an election, but really democracy in the United States. And looking back now a year into the Biden administration, a democratically led Congress, there are all these questions about what were those promises that were made? What were the promises that were kept? And for those that were not, what were the obstacles? How would you characterize the Biden administration's first year in office? Well, I think that that is a fantastic question because I have been looking at the Biden administration. As you know, I'm a part of the Kamala Harris Project, which comes out of University of Southern California. And I think that we are at a moment of disappointment somewhat because there was so much anxiety during the Trump years for many of us. And there was hope that we would pivot in a way that would get us back to some equilibrium that some people feel they experienced before the Trump years. And the Biden administration got off to a difficult start because of January 6th and some other things. And things have um, not gotten better with COVID-19 and things have not gotten better in some areas of domestic policies that people were hoping would shift. And so I think we're at a moment of um, concern and observation. So let's talk about the concern and the observation and the disappointment, because for me, the, the natural question would be disappointment in whom or in what? So is it disappointment in the administration? Is it disappointment in Congress? Is it disappointment that, you know, things have not changed more quickly, given that we know the problems the U.S. faces didn't occur overnight? But many people said, look, things are so bad. You have to do something now, not just for people in the United States, but really as a signal to the rest of the world about what can be expected with this global leadership. Exactly. Um, I think it's our impatience because I think people wanted things 
to change quickly. And that's just human nature. I think also there were many people that had aspirations that the U.S. would function the way that maybe Ireland does, the way Brian was saying that there's like some genuflection to authority. I think there were people who were shocked at um, the large numbers of citizens that respected Trump's authority, and I'll say authority and not leadership. And then when the Biden administration came along, I think those people were hoping that people would respond to the office and not just the person. And what we are finding now is that we're not looking at the presidency as an institution, but a role that is held by people that citizens will respond to different people differently, which obviously was not the goal. Brian, what are you seeing in the the international perspective? So, you know, Trump had sort of this tenuous relationship with the rest of the world, some who liked his approach to leadership and governance, some who liked the idea that he believed in America first because it meant that they could deal with their own country's affairs and not worry about U.S. intervention. And then there were others who said, we need a strong ally that we can count on. So what is the perspective from other countries who have been looking to the Biden administration, either to continue that approach or to do something different, as Dutch has said, to restore authority and respect for authority. I was in Wilmington, Delaware, a few weeks after Joe Biden was elected. He was still president-elect and he held a big event on the stage of a theater there called the Queen Theater to announce his foreign policy team. And he unveiled Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and various other members of his cabinet and spoke about how America was back and we are back on the international stage and it's all about regaining our position in the world. The last guy was all about America first. I'm going to be about reestablishing America's international position. And people thought that that would be the case. And certainly, I think... To pick up on Duchess's point where she was talking about the year as a whole, I've kind of split it into two. I think the first half of the year went pretty well for Biden. He was brand new. There was a sense from his supporters and from a huge chunk of America that they just wanted Trump out. They wanted someone else in. They got the someone else. They got Joe Biden. Everybody gave him the benefit of the doubt at the start. And things went well, I think, for him in those first few months. Undid a lot of the unpopular policies, particularly on the international front. If you look at the Iran nuclear deal, Paris Climate Accord did the things he said he was going to do, undid some of those unpopular measures from the Trump administration. The second half of the year did not go well. And it didn't go well for a number of different reasons. I mean, the economy was sluggish. COVID-19 wasn't going away. The crisis at the US-Mexico border reignited again, worse than it did during the Trump administration. And then the pullout from Afghanistan happened. And for me, I think that was the moment that for a lot of people, it upended the view that Joe Biden was supposed to be the foreign policy president. He was supposed to be the president that got international affairs, that understood allies, that understood foes, that understood how the world worked. He's years a senator, years a vice president. He was supposed to understand these things. But what we saw with the pullout from Afghanistan was this disastrous withdrawal. We saw the Taliban regain control in a matter of days, the whole thing falling apart and people scratching their heads and wondering after 20 years, after America's longest war, how could the pullout have been the way it was? And the other thing I think it upended in people's minds was that Joe Biden was meant to be the president of empathy, that he understood human suffering and emotion and that he could appeal to people on that level. 
But when we saw those chaotic scenes of people clinging to the wheels of airplanes, terrified Afghans, terrified of what was going to happen to them, initially, I think, from the Biden administration, there was almost a shrug of the shoulders. I remember he was being interviewed on ABC News, and the interviewer put it to him that, what about those chaotic scenes at the airport? And he sort of dismissed it and said, oh, that was days ago, and it's getting better now. Subsequent press conferences, he did start to show some of that emotion again. But I think what we saw were those upendings of two big things that people thought president of empathy and a president that got international affairs. Yeah, I think some of that disappointment that Duchess referred to uh, for Democrats really comes from, you know, at the beginning of the year, there was a lot of hope for what this administration could achieve. And by the end of the year, you know, even with uh, control of the Senate, control of the House and the White House, a lot of the goals that were set and, and in mind for, for the Biden administration didn't come to fruition. You know, we didn't see that that social spending bill that everybody had hoped to have by, before the end of the year. And so there's a lot of disappointment there. And I think anxiety as we head into the midterms where there's a very good chance that that makeup of the Congress could get shaken up and we could lose, the Democrats could lose control of the Senate or the House possibly. That disappointment and anxiety, I think really, recast the whole year, even though there obviously were successes successes with the infrastructure bill, with some of COVID responses earlier on, I think it all gets kind of recast by the end where it's like, oh, this is we didn't get all the things that we wanted to get. Kaylee, let's continue that point because we are coming up into these important congressional elections and they are elections that will have an impact on the daily lives, not just of Americans, but on issues of foreign policy really across the globe. And we know that typically in those elections, the party in power of the White House usually has losses. So if the Biden administration has struggled to get things across the finish line with a narrowly democratically controlled Congress, we know that Joe Manchin is still doing his own thing, sort of leveraging his idea as I'm going to be the pivot and use that to my advantage. And at the same time, we are now going to see the impact of the results of the U.S. Census when it comes to redistricting and gerrymandering. So all of the things that Brian talked about of, you know, Biden in his speech on uh, the anniversary of January 6th talked about the battle for the soul of America and talked about the importance of voting rights. What should we be looking at when we think about these upcoming congressional elections? And what do you see as the priorities? We know the implications, but what should the priorities be as we think about the role of Congress and this particular set of elections? Yeah, I mean, going into this year, Biden's approval rating it continues to be underwater. And as you mentioned, you know, there's been some struggles to get things passed. I think that those are, are indicators early on that you know, might make Democrats a little more concerned. We are watching the redistricting process really closely at 538. We've been tracking every single state and every single, you know, map that comes out uh, and is proposed. And it's been really interesting to see how all those lines are shifting, how each state is, is grappling with it differently, whether it's a partisan process in some states, an independent process in others. So I think that that's really key to understanding how the map might turn out by the time we actually get to the voting booths. There's also been a number of legislative changes. There's been this really big push from Republican legislators at the state level to introduce voter reform, um, voter suppression laws, some might argue, uh, and changing the way that we vote. 
those are going to really come into play for the first time in these midterms. And we're going to see what that actually looks like, including some of these laws that, that have been criticized as being, you know, highly partisan and ejecting partisanship into what should be more of a, a neutral, you know, kind of governorship of, of the elections. They're changing some of those rules so that they can, you know, change the makeup of election boards at the local level, things like that. Um, is that going to happen during the midterms? Or are we going to see some changes to how people are actually able to vote? Is it going to be more difficult for some people to vote? I think that seeing those in action is going to give us a lot of clues about what 2024 might look like. When we return, we continue our roundtable conversation with RTE's Brian O'Donovan, Professor Duchess Harris from McAllister College, and 538 reporter Kaylee Rogers. We'll hear more about the last year on Capitol Hill and concerns about big tech, and later, if we can finally come together to fight climate change. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. All this hour, we're recapping the events of 2021 with a roundtable discussion with three political experts. Brian O'Donovan is Washington correspondent for Ireland's public radio service, RTE. Duchess Harris is professor of American studies at McAllister College. And Kaylee Rogers is technology and politics reporter at 538. Earlier this month, we learned of the passing of influential professor and civil rights advocate Lonnie Guineer. Guineer rose to national prominence when President Bill Clinton nominated her to be the assistant attorney general. But long before that nomination, Guineer had dedicated her career to protecting and affirming voting rights. I asked Duchess to reflect on the legacy of Lonnie Guineer and what progress we've made since her nomination. I was devastated on Friday when I learned of her passing at only 71 years old. And I think that when we look at her career and what she tried to do for decades, it speaks to the divide that's in the Democratic Party that is between the liberal Democrats and the more progressive Democrats. And I think that it's important for us to look at this issue of gerrymandering and realize that it doesn't just get pushed back from the Republican Party, but the infighting within the Democrats is partly why we are where we are. Because when she was trying to be seated as Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, um, the accusation, of course, was that she wanted quotas and she didn't want quotas, right? She wanted us to look at the situation that we are still in now, um, that Kaylee can even help us understand um, if we're any better off than we were in 1993. And that leaves us with all these dilemmas about who will have control in Congress and who will have opportunities to vote and how we're going to have participatory democracy, particularly for impoverished people of color who are marginalized from voting and getting representation. I want to bring in Kaylee and, and Brian, because what Duchess is talking about is the importance of structure and how structure shapes the choices that we have or the choices that we think we have, but also the opportunities that people have to influence those choices. 
And one of the things that we're seeing quite a bit in the U.S. right now, particularly with the the congressional consideration, is how big tech companies are being scrutinized right now. So that executives from Facebook or Meta and Twitter and all of these other companies had to come before these congressional subcommittees. We've seen the Biden administration nominate antitrust activists like Lena Khan to the Federal Trade Commission. And it it seems to signal that there is this effort to change the institutions and the structures to in turn force more competition in the market. Kaylee, let me start with you. How did you think we, how did we get to this point where in the panoply of all the things that are being considered that Duchess mentioned, that Brian talked about the, the impact on the world stage, how did we get to this point where this is the focus for Congress And given that we are in this key election year, what that may signal to constituents who are looking to their legislators. I mean, as far as big tech, they've played a really important role in some of the the grander issues that have led to this point as far as facilitating the spread of disinformation around the the COVID-19 pandemic, around the vaccine, around the election and, and the big lie. Big tech has played an integral role in that, and they've obviously made some efforts to to mitigate that. But at the end of the day, these are for-profit companies that are trying to maximize their bottom line, um, which is their prerogative. And we've seen so many hearings where they kind of dragoon Mark Zuckerberg in front of a a commission, and he regurgitates the same lines he always says. At at the end of the day, I don't think we're going to get some answer out of him that's going to unlock it all. if Congress is serious, they might want to consider some legislation. There's been proposals from experts who very closely understand these issues and, and study them. They are willing to work with Congress to come up with ideas for, for regulation that makes sense. Part of the issue is that as old as the internet is, this is still in many ways kind of a new frontier as far as regulation goes. We don't, you know, it doesn't closely mirror other kinds of industries that we have. So we do have to approach it from a fresh perspective. But there's there's a, a gap, I think, in, in a lot of understanding of what's already in place, how that functions, and, and what could be changed. You know, I've heard people suggesting just completely scratching um, Section 230 of the Communications Act. That would be a terrible idea for, you know, for example, newspapers online that have comment sections. Suddenly they would be liable for people saying um, you know, offensive or, or ridiculous or untrue things in their comment section, for example. So that's not really a solution. There are other options here. It's so hard for me to imagine them taking this seriously enough that it is a priority, though I think it should be, when we have inflation out of control, when we have a pandemic that's still very much raging in this country. You know, big tech has an important role to play in all of those, but I don't know that it's going to remain like a top priority until we get some progress on some other issues. Brian, what would you see as the international perspective on this? Are other countries as concerned about, you know, these global behemoths that can really have their thumbprint on what happens, not just politically, but economically and socially? And would you say that other countries see this connection that Kaylee mentioned between these are, you know, profit creating entities that we shouldn't paint with these broad strokes because of all of those other implications? The tech giant battle is always fought in Ireland when it comes to Europe because of our low corporation tax. All the big tech giants have their European headquarters here in Ireland. So you will often see 
privacy cases or antitrust cases or various issues being fought in the Irish courts as a result of the fact that they have their headquarters here in Ireland. So there's a keen interest, certainly. And all the big tech companies are huge employers in Ireland as well. And we have a data protection commissioner here in Ireland that ends up covering a lot of the data issues that come up with those big companies. So it's certainly from an Irish perspective, something there's huge interest in. And I think internationally, absolutely, was one of the big if you look back over the chaotic Trump years in the US, I mean, one of the big stories, I suppose, that came out of it were how the social media companies interacted with him, how he interacted with social media. Donald Trump used social media to great effect. And in the end, eventually, he was taken off social media. They finally fought back. He, of course, railed against this. He felt he was being censored. He felt he was being blocked. And we saw this battle being waged between the two. Kayleigh mentioned earlier, of course, misinformation to do with COVID, the pandemic, all of that. Of course, of course, in recent years, we have also seen the strength and the power of social media. And I'm reminded of the Black Lives Matter protest movement of 2020, the terrible, awful murder of George Floyd captured by a young girl and, you know, social media being used to great effect there, where we saw things that happened before in the shadows and in the dark being exposed in the ways that they should be. But certainly that scrutiny, although Donald Trump has moved on, has not moved on. And the scrutiny is still there. And the Facebook whistleblower who testified on Capitol Hill also testified before European and British parliaments and spoke about the concerns at the company there. It was a bad year last year for Facebook, so much so that they changed their name. But I think it'll change a lot, take a lot more than that to move away from the huge issues that they have had. And I don't think the eyes are going to go off the tech issues now that we've moved on to other areas, it's certainly a big area of concern, I think, for countries around the world. Duchess, Brian mentioned the power of technology and social media to connect people to a global movement and a global perspective to highlight issues and people that previously may not have been spotlighted without the ability to get that information out and across and to get it away in real time so that people could see for themselves what was happening. And he mentioned the murder of George Floyd. And so I juxtapose that, the the global reaction to his murder and the murders of other unarmed people with 2021 and all of the debates about so-called critical race theory being taught in schools. And I want to bring you in here because, you know, not only have you written about this, your book was one of the books that was targeted of this should not be taught to young people because by teaching them about history and the world around them right now, it's somehow going to impose this guilt. How do we break through that so that we can really harness the power that Brian is mentioning of connecting people to build towards something better and not be afraid of what we are going through today and what we've gone through in the past? I mean, that seems to be the question of the moment because after George Floyd was killed, I, of course, you know, live in the city where he was killed. I was brought in to write books for fourth to eighth graders and sixth to 12th graders about the killing of George Floyd, but also about police violence in America. And what's interesting is how heartbroken the Twin Cities was. And it was, um, I think, a combination of both being heartbroken and ashamed. But even though you had those emotions happening at the same time, what you didn't have was remedy and a plan for solution. 
And so when I tried to participate in providing a solution, here's this book on the killing of George Floyd, then the dilemma ended up being, oh, but we couldn't possibly teach that. Right. And so it was either that it was not going to be um, introduced into the curriculum or in a place like Texas, those books um, would be banned from the curriculum. So when Texas puts out their list of 850 books, four of them are mine, and they're all about what is happening from my vantage point locally, but also how that needs to be engaged globally. That global engagement, Kaylee, seems to come to a head around what it means to achieve justice and what it means to realize justice. So that some people thought the conviction of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd was a measure of justice. And then we realized that the people who killed Breonna Taylor still have not been charged, that Kyle Rittenhouse in Wisconsin was acquitted of these murders and has been able to raise lots of money via GoFundMe and other avenues. And at the same time, just this last week, the three men who were involved in murdering Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia were sentenced to over 30 years in prison. So it it feels in some ways like justice is coming and fits and starts in the U.S. But it goes back to that question again about institutions. Do you feel like there there is a moment for hope here that eventually the U.S., the justice system can get it right? Or do you feel like these were sort of exemplars and exceptional cases where because they were caught on video, people felt they had no other choice. It's so hard to make predictions about what this will continue to look like, but I will say that it's really hard for me to imagine seeing these outcomes without all of the effort of the Black Lives Matter movement throughout 2020 and 2021 to raise awareness and to put pressure and to focus on these unarmed men being shot and killed and women being shot and killed. Um, That did so much work um, publicly and and culturally to to get us to where we are now. You know, whether that progress will continue and what that looks like is I think a question mark. Um, As far as the critical race theory, that really fits in. I I did a story with my colleague, Alex Samuels about sort of the, the history of, Republicans and pushing certain agendas when it comes to curriculums and and what's being taught in schools. And it dates back decades, you know, from fighting against having um, evolution taught in schools, fighting against sex education being taught in schools, common core, like there's constantly these battles. And increasingly they become more uh, these culture war battles that that they've imposed into the the school board meetings as long as well as everywhere else that's happening. And that's sort of the latest iteration of that. There's always sort of a a new battle that's being waged. And what we're seeing as a response to that, as well as a response to some of the pandemic requirements, as far as masks and school shutdowns and things like that, we're starting to see more hyper-partisan and, uh, anti-establishment candidates running for positions on school boards and in these local areas to, you know, who are against critical race theory, sort of their umbrella term that they use, who are against mask mandates and and genuinely trying to affect change that way. So we're, we're seeing a shift where the 
the push for power is is at every level um, among the GOP. And we're seeing people who feel really passionately about these topics running and, and winning seats, even at these levels of school boards. And that's where we're going to see, I think, this continue to be a, a battleground. I, I just want to come in on that. And I like Haley's point about how Republicans have a tendency to come up with a thing, a bogeyman that does or does not exist. And Donald Trump, of course, was the king of it. And he used to say that Joe Biden will defund the police. And Joe Biden was never going to defund the police. And if you elect Joe Biden, you're going to have marauding packs of people protesting outside your door and looting and burning down your stores. He was very good at coming up with a thing that didn't really exist at all. And of course, eventually, his ultimate thing that didn't exist at all was the stolen election that he continued to peddle false claims about. But the critical race theory was another example of that, where Republicans said, here's a thing, here's a big problem that's out there and it's going to cause the ruination of society. And of course, it wasn't being taught in schools at all. And this was used to great effect by Glenn Youngkin in the Virginia governor's race last November. And unfortunately for his Democratic candidate, he didn't do a very good job, Terry McAuliffe, of counteracting that, infamously saying, I don't think parents should be able to tell teachers how to run their schools. And of course, that got the backlash of parents. But the central point didn't change that critical race theory wasn't being taught in these schools. This wasn't a big issue, but they made it a big issue. And Glenn Youngkin took an issue, ran with it, and had great success with it. And Glenn Youngkin did something else as well, very cleverly in that election. He managed to keep Donald Trump at arm's length. He got the support of Donald Trump. He got the endorsement of Donald Trump. But somehow, I don't know how, we managed to convince him not to campaign on a campaign stage with him and to stay away from Virginia. And it worked. And I think that will be the blueprint that will be the roadmap, the playbook that you're going to see Republicans use again and again and again in the run up to the midterms who need to keep those 75 million Donald Trump supporters on side. But they can't embrace him too much and be seen on the stage with him because that will alienate the moderate voter, many of whom in the suburbs, among a lot of women voters, cannot stand Donald Trump and still despise him. So what you have to do is walk that line down the middle. Glenn Youngkin did it, and I think you're going to see lots of Republicans copying it when it comes to the midterms. After the break, more from our panelists, Brian O'Donovan, Duchess Harris, and Kaylee Rogers. We'll hear how we might be able to finally fight the deadly threat of climate change and why sports could unite all of us. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, climate disasters in the U.S. cost over $145 billion in 2021. The deadly Hurricane Ida that ravaged the coast of Louisiana over the summer left millions without power, and it caused over $75 billion in damage. What can we do about these now commonplace natural disasters? Today, our roundtable reflects on the biggest events from 2021. Our guests are Brian O'Donovan, Washington correspondent for Ireland's public radio service, RTE. Duchess Harris is professor of American studies at McAllister College. And Kaylee Rogers is the technology and politics reporter at 538. I asked Brian if these devastating natural events could finally motivate the U.S. to move past our political differences and fight climate change together. I think if you look at the politics of Donald Trump, he was the divider in chief. His politics was about divide and conquer. 
and to find the differences between people and exploit them. And he did it throughout his four years. And whatever came his way, he continued to do it, particularly when it came to COVID. COVID ended up being divided down geographical lines and political lines. And he would attack those democratic states, those democratic governors who in institute mask mandates or lockdowns or anything like that. And he would go the other way. And that's the way it always was. And that's the way, you know, everybody got a nickname when Donald Trump was campaigning. When COVID came along, he had an enemy that he couldn't give a nickname to, but he tried. He called it the Kung Flu and the China this and the whatever else he could come up with. And that was his way of dealing with an issue. You attack, you divide, and you exploit the differences. And unfortunately, yes, as you say, that is at the detriment of a big serious issue like climate change. And we saw when Joe Biden came into power, some of his earliest measures that he enacted were undoing some of those climate-related things that Donald Trump had initiated during his presidency. But then you could say that Joe Biden's year ended with the COP climate conference in uh, Glasgow, and that left huge disappointment across the world that more wasn't agreed to and that higher uh, targets weren't achieved. And this is coming off the back of a year, particularly in the United States, where the effects of climate change had never been more visible. You had unprecedented flooding in the East while at the same time the West was burning. It could not have been more obvious that there was a huge, huge crisis here, but still it wasn't enough to rally people together. Climate change, unfortunately, has also become one of those dividing lines, has it not, where you have some saying, oh, it's all natural, it'll all change in time and nothing to see here. And then, of course, you have the other side of the scientists insisting that it's a far bigger problem. Duchess, am I being unrealistic here to, to think that we could actually get together on something? To think, as Brian said, you know, burning on one end, drowning on the other, this massive snow ice storm affecting Texas, where people's lives were imperiled while their elected representative was uh, vacationing or with family in Mexico. Like if, if those things aren't enough for people to say, wait a minute, what we're doing is not working, what will it take for people to actually come together and coalesce in a positive way? I think one of the strategies we need to have is to think about how people can localize these issues. So when I think about climate change, I think about um, communities of color back in the late 90s that were saying that environmentalism wasn't about them and how the environmental movement was um, a mostly white movement and how that had to be reframed with notions of environmental racism and environmental justice. And so I think that, um, you know, for people to get in different communities to talk about climate change in a way that resonates with them is one way for different people um, to get um, together to fight this fight. But I think some of it connects to what Kaylee was saying is that we used to believe the scientists. One of the issues that we have is that so many people don't think that climate change is, a, is an issue. They think it's made up. It's like what Brian's saying. It's like they think that this is just another boogeyman that, you know, um, climate change, climate change isn't real and critical race theory is going to destroy our third graders. Kaylee, I, th I think I may have cut you off. Please weigh in. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I This is where I'm not an optimist. The, the global response to the pandemic really eroded some of my faith that we could do anything about climate change because it is a global issue. And the way that, for example, with vaccines, you know, wealthy countries jumping the line, hoarding these vaccines, making sure that their population got it first. And look, I'm very grateful that, you know, my 
uh, 93-year-old grandmother-in-law got her shot very early, but the reality is that we maybe could have um, done that in a different way where the areas that were most impacted, regardless of how much money that particular nation or region had, were getting vaccines first and rolling it out that way. And instead, the wealthy nations got them first, hoarded them, and in many cases, you know, half their population didn't even want them and rejected them. That's really alarming to me because tackling climate change is not going to be only about how is this impacting us? What can we do to protect our interests? It's good. We have to look at it as a global issue or it's never going to be even close to solved. And again, seeing like what happened at COP and, and how disappointing sort of the, the outcome of that was, it's just, it's, it's tough to, to see a lot of hope there. I think that Duchess's point about localizing the approach it's maybe the best way, because if we can start from the ground up, maybe we'll get there. So we, we're talking about localizing our approach. We're talking about our global connections and the interconnections that really bind us together. And as we you know, sort of move toward the close of our time together, I'm thinking here that we're approaching the 2022 Olympics. And how growing up as a kid, I always look forward to the Olympics because I felt like I learned so much about other countries and those commonalities across countries and across perspectives. And as we see this sort of increasingly divisive, hostile space, there emerges this question of, you know, whether it even makes sense to hold these games and how some countries are pulling out or pulling out their teams because of these kinds of debates that really mean something in the long term beyond athletes and beyond their participation on the global stage. And one of the things that I'm thinking here is about the role of mental health of athletes from various countries saying, I am not well. And I am not going to compete just because the expectation is there. So for any of you, do, do you feel like the Olympics may be a way to reaffirm that common humanity and, and bring us together? Or do you see it as a distraction from some of the really important issues that all of you have talked about, whether it's the global threat of climate change, the global threat of division, and um, sort of the global threats of, of the COVID-19 pandemic that in and of itself has changed the nature of the game? So anyone want to weigh in? Well, I'd just say sport is the great unifier, I think. And it's always remarkable to see countries coming together and communities coming together to support their favorite sports star. And we see it all the time. And I think there is great strength in that. And there is great optimism and there is great hope. And, you know, sometimes maybe it is a distraction, but maybe sometimes we need the distraction, whether it's COVID, whether it's political fighting. You know, sometimes it is good to have a sport that you can cheer, cheer on your team. But I am minded right now of a big sports story that's in the headlines, certainly here in Europe. I'm sure it's making the headlines there in the US. And it's the tennis star Novak Djokovic and the big row there about the vaccines. And there we see this combination of sport meeting politics where it's politically expedient and popular, I think, for the political leaders in Australia to treat him in a certain way. But of course, his opponents, or rather his supporters and his families would say he's being very mistreated. So there, I think we see a good combination of a big, big story like COVID-19 mixing into the world of sports. And we've seen that time and time again throughout the pandemic, be it stadiums that have no supporters in them or people testing positive, games being cancelled and events being cancelled. And we've seen it time and time again, this combination, this meeting of sport and the big global issues that are going on at the time. I mean, I love the meeting of sport and mental health, as you had said previously. 
And I had a colleague that couldn't figure out um, what professional move she wanted to make. And I said to her, be Simone Biles and step back, right? And I thought that what Simone Biles did earlier on in 2021 was actually um, admirable and um, just an inspiration. And so I think that when it comes to sports, the world is watching. Um, it's difficult to figure out what we should do in terms of safety and COVID-19 and how people should be competing. But I think the messages that we get that are both um, political and personal lessons are invaluable. Yeah, I think that I was just gonna say that that sports and, and culture has value. And if you're, if you're thinking of it as a distraction or as something that doesn't really matter or have impact, like that just really hurts my heart to think that we would let these cultural things lose their significance for us. I'm thinking of the, the January 6th uh, memorial that happened at the Capitol and the cast of Hamilton performed a song um, remotely. And there was so much criticism of it on Twitter. Like people were just dragging that this performance even happened. And it, it just seems so cynical to me that people can't see the value of cultural moments in bringing us together and having some unity and, and hope for the future. And I think that sports is a great way to do that. There's plenty of, of valid criticism of the IOC and some of the decisions that are made. But as far as the athletes and the competitions going on, I think we should enjoy it and, and try to take something positive from it. Kaylee Rogers is the technology and politics reporter for 538. Dr. Duchess Harris is professor of American studies at McAllister College. And Brian O'Donovan is currently Washington correspondent for Ireland's public radio service, RTE. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. To find links to the work of our panelists, you can visit us at ctpublic.org disrupted. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening.